musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And it was just five years ago today that I posted my first podcast from the salon, which means that this is the first program of our sixth year together. And if we're not careful, we're soon going to be in a long-term relationship, uh, at least by today's standards. Now, before I do anything else, I would first like to acknowledge the woman without whom I would not be here today, my dear departed mother, who would have been 95 years old today. Happy birthday, Mom. I love you. And some other people I would like to thank right now are Tyler S., Colin F., and Michael H., all of whom sent in donations to help offset some of the expenses here in the salon this week. So thank you very much, Tyler, Colin, and Michael. And I would also like to thank you, for without you, why, it would be pretty lonely around here. And I think you should also know how unique you are. After reading down the list of titles from all of these podcasts over the past five years, I'm actually quite amazed at how many people there are around the world who are interested in the same things you and I are interested in. Let's face it, uh, a lot of our friends, relatives, neighbors, and co-workers probably think we're nuts to be spending our time listening to these philosophical lectures. But here we are, together once again in the psychedelic salon, trying to push the boundaries of our minds ever farther to the outer reaches of thought. Or, uh, as in my case, uh, hey, I just like listening to this stuff, and I try to not put a lot of thought into why I'm wired the way I am. I'm just happy that uh, you and I seem to be resonating at some level that feels right, that uh, feels like we're doing whatever small things we can to uh, keep our species on an even keel as we navigate these treacherous waters ahead. So, how's that for melodrama? <laughs> it's the best I can do right now, because uh, what I really want to do is to listen to this talk once again. And the talk I'm referring to is a conversation that took place between Myron Stoloroff Gary Fisher and a group of friends at the legendary salon that Kathleen hosted on the third Friday of every month in Venice Beach, California. Sadly, these salons ended a few years ago, but at least I have a recording that was made on the evening of March 19th, 2004 that I'm going to play for you right now. And since I've already done several other podcasts that featured either Gary or Myron, I'm not going to reintroduce them to you uh, now because I'm sure you already are well aware of the significant contributions each of them made to the early scientific research in psychedelic medicines. And if you've heard my audiobook, The Genesis Generation, then you already have an idea of what those salons were like because Chapter 9 takes place at one of Kathleen's salons. Basically, they were give-and-take sessions between the speakers and the audience. And in this case, I now find it tragically ironic that in the very beginning of their talk, Gary and Myron are teasing one another about having memory problems. Sadly, today Myron is uh, now suffering from dementia and essentially has no memory of the past anymore, which makes this recording even more precious to me because uh, we'll never hear Myron tell these tales again. And so I'm glad that I more or less forced the two of them to lead our discussion that evening, uh, Kathleen and I had been trying to get them to do that for a year or more, but they always found some excuse not to. Then, about a week before the March Salon, Kathleen called me and said that her speaker had canceled at the last minute and asked if I knew anyone who could fill in. Well, I knew that Myron was already planning on attending, and since my wife and I had already planned on bringing Gary with us, 
Uh, so they simply couldn't wiggle out of it this time. And uh, then at the very last minute, I realized that an evening like that may never come again and uh, should be recorded. So I called my friend Jarrett, who borrowed a video camera and drove all the way across L.A. to get it to me in time. And uh, that tape, which was in high eight, sat on my desk until recently uh, when I finally got around to asking my friend Alan Lundell to uh, digitize it for me. And eventually I'll get the clips from it up on YouTube. But right now we're going to hear the audio from that evening's salon for the very first time. Thanks to Alan, Jarrett, Kathleen, and of course Myron and Gary. So now let's travel back in time to one of those magical evenings at Kathleen's salon and listen to Gary Fisher and Myron Stoleroff tell us a few stories that may help us shed a little more light on the early days of our current psychedelic resurgence. And uh, by the way, uh, by the end of this discussion, they finally make it to the funny stories, uh, of which I'm sure you have many of your own. (laughs) Now, uh, I'm going to just jump right into the point immediately after I had introduced Myron and Gary as the uh, evening's entertainment. But keep in mind that both of them were also regulars at this monthly salon, and uh, so it wasn't like they were new to the crowd. Okay, you guys can take it from there. Um, Myron's going to talk for a while about um, himself, hopefully, and uh, Al Hubbard. And um, after he's finished, then we're going to take questions from the audience. But while he's talking, uh, we don't want to interrupt his train of thought because he'll never get back to it. (laughs) (laughs) My thoughts disappear this fast. (laughs) I know, because i got the same syndrome. Um, I was a little disconcerted to get a call from George Bush earlier today, and Myron's been appointed sainthood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Well, he's the Pope, and so I don't know who this guy is here. I thought I knew him. so, um, Myron, let's start. Okay. <clears throat> One of the questions <clears throat> that uh, Gary asked me, and which I hope you all will be interested in, is how did I get mixed up with Hubbard in the first place? And it's really a fascinating story to me, anyway. That <laughs> uh, uh, I'd gotten acquainted with uh, Gerald Herder in Southern California, who's one of the world's really great mystics and a marvelous author if you've read his books. And uh, I was very taken with him. And uh, uh, well, I was with Ampex Corporation and went to Southern California frequently. And every time that I went down there in business, I tried to see. Uh, 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 <coughs> tried to see Gerald. So one time I was visiting him and he started telling me about LSD and taking it and what a remarkable thing it was and all the openings that it provided. And I thought, my God, what, what's a mystic doing taking drugs anyway? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I didn't do much more about it, but then Alex Ponyatoff was the head of Ampex Corporation and he'd gone to Canada and somehow or other he'd run into Hubbard and he came back and told me all kinds of stories that uh, Hubbard had told him about the work he was doing so I thought well gee whiz maybe I ought to get in touch with him so I wrote Al a letter and much to my amazement two or three months later he's, there he is on the steps of, the, of, uh, of Ampex so we got acquainted 
and I was sucked in immediately. He, <laughs> he's a very gregarious person, full of fun and laughter. And the thing that, that got me, um, you know, I was all shut up inside myself and uh, worried about this and that and the other thing, and I could never really feel anybody. But in his presence, I could feel his warmth. And uh, especially as I got to know him and spent more time with him, I just thought it was great just to be in his presence. And he's full of stories and all kinds of interesting things. So uh, it only took that one meeting for me to make up my mind that I wanted to go to Canada where he lived and uh, have LSD. And my first LSD experience was just absolutely remarkable. So. Uh, I think I was ventured to say right off the bat that that's the greatest discovery man has ever made. Of course, I don't know much else what the man discovered, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm willing to stand by that. So that's how I got into it. And uh, Hubbard came down, introduced him to some folks. Some of them got along with, some that he didn't. But in the end, uh, I just saw that I had to spend the rest of my life as much as possible in doing something about LSD. So I used to visit him quite a bit. <clears throat> he got together with Ross McLean in Canada. Ross McLean was a psychiatrist who had a, a mental hospital, and they administered LSD there, and I visited him there. And uh, after a while, I got to the point where I felt we had to do something, and so we started the clinic in Menlo Park where for three and a half years uh, we gave people LSD, uh, some mescaline, a little bit of psilocybin at, at times, until the FDA finally put a stop to everything in uh, 1965. So that's, that's how I got into And uh, Myron, uh, tell us how uh, Al Hubbard, how did he get a hold of LSD? Or how was he introduced to it? I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly who the people were that he got involved with. Uh, <clears throat> he did run into someone in the Vancouver area uh, who introduced him to LSD, and it only took one shot with him. He had an amazing opening, a tremendously spiritual experience, and he felt actually he'd been given a mission to uh, really spread this around. Fortunately, at the time, he was very well off financially. He had a very close friend who was wealthy. Who uh, He gave LSD to his friend, and his friend had the same kind of opening and was willing to support him in anything that he wanted to do. So he began to devote a lot of time meeting people, getting acquainted, and he was very good at sizing people up and assessing whether they'd make... Uh, good candidates, and he was very good at supporting people through the experience. So he began to spread the word, the word around, and uh, he covered an awful lot of ground. My connection was secondhand to him because my mentor was a guy by the name of Nick Shalalas, who was my brother-in-law. And he was a research uh, psychiatrist at the uh, University of Saskatchewan. And um, at the time, uh, they were studying LSD, and it was called at that time a psychotoma medic, uh, mimicking psychosis. So they were uh, giving people LSD, 
thinking they would discover what were the structures and the dynamics of psychosis. And Al went over and said, it's easy to make people crazy. What's hard is to make them sane. And LSD will make them sane and won't make them crazy. But if you give it the wrong, if you don't give it in the proper environment, it will make them crazy. And so that's uh, how, and I don't know how he got uh, to the Saskatchewan. It was called the Saskatchewan Group on Schizophrenia. That was the name of their project. And that was Hoffer and Osman. And then uh, my brother-in-law, Nick Shawallison, and his partner, uh, Duncan Blewett. And I had my first experience there with them in 1959, before any of you were born. <laughs> and I got born that day that I put mine in my first session. Um, and Myra, why don't you tell us a bit about uh, the work that was done at Menlo Park? Well, I'll be glad to do that, but I'd like to in interject a little bit of what you just said about Duncan and Blewett, because uh, <clears throat> I, I'm not sure how the connection was made, but uh, Al went to Central Canada and met with, uh, uh, with Hoffer and Osman, and he'd heard about their approach, which uh, really wasn't recognizing what LSD would do at all, but somehow he met uh, Blewett, <coughs> And, and he's very sensitive, and Blewett's a very open, warm person. He recognized right away that, that Blewett would be a good candidate. So he gave Blewett LSD, and uh, he was off with Osmond and Hoffer. And uh, he went in and looked, looked at Blewett, and Blewett was just having the time of his life. <laughs> so he went out to see uh, Hoffer and Osmond and says, he said, you know, uh, this, this guy, Blewett, is, is, is having a psychosis. You better come in and see if you can get him out of it. So they walked in, and immediately Blewett started laughing and laughing. And, and Al says, see, see, can you get him out of it? And he would just laugh all the time. <laughs> Well, anyhow, uh, Hubbard worked with uh, McLean at his hospital there for several years, and I got to visit that. And uh, uh, then Hubbard, well, he's not an easy guy to get along with. So. <laughs> he very much likes things his own way, and so I'm not sure what the conflict got between he and uh, uh, he <coughs> and McLean, but he decided to set up his own uh, treatment place in downtown Vancouver. And that went on for a while, and I thought, gee whiz, we ought to do the same in Menlo, uh, in California. So uh, I put the necessary things together. Fortunately, I accumulated a little cash, and uh, we set up a place for, uh, uh, really was set up pretty much the way Al uh, designed it. Uh, very nice furniture, comfortable setting, uh, beautiful pictures on the wall. A lot of artifacts for people to look at to stimulate them in various ways. And then, of course, one of his uh, main tricks was to have people bring uh, pictures of their family, uh, their, their parents, their siblings, uh, their marriage partners, and so on. Uh, because looking at that under the influence uh, brings is tremendously revealing. And he had another, uh, several really good pictures, too, that uh, actually one, one just really opened me wide open. Well, I, I don't know how much...
same, is that same Veronica's veil? Yeah. 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 Oh, hell. I use it thousands of times. <laughs> it's worn out. It's a, um, it's a, oh, well, hell, it was a Catholic. And um, so it was um, the setup that I uh, created for my work was exactly what they had in Menlo Park because it's what they had in Saskatchewan. So we were all uh, descendant, you know, benefactors of, of Al's um, uh, insights. And um, it's uh, when, my understanding is when Christ was carrying the cross, he fell and Veronica wiped his brow with her handkerchief. And then it was the, uh, and then the next day on the handkerchief was the image of uh, uh, Christ and there's this awesome painting called St. Veronica's Veil and um, um, most powerful thing we we used it every session and you know when they used it with me I was not happy with Christians I'm telling you I mean I had a family of Christians and they were all kooky and um, so I wasn't about to look at it you know but uh, Nick, you know, every hour or so, he'd pass it to me again. Well, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so finally, uh, thank God, I looked at it. And uh, it was an overpowering experience to, uh, uh, to experience what uh, uh, Christ's love is. And um, I was astounded. I was absolutely astounded. Um, so that was um, work for me, and I thought if it works for me, hell can work for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're certainly right in, in my case. I'll just elaborate briefly. I've covered this in, in, the, in the book, but um, I looked at this figure, and one of the things about it <clears throat> is one of these pictures where you look and the eyes are open, and then you keep looking and the eyes closed. Did that happen with you? <clears throat> so I saw the eyes closed and I oh my God, something's wrong with me. How, why is he closing his eyes? Because the picture, when you're under LSD, is so alive. It's almost like a living person in front of you. It is. And so I looked again and then all of a sudden there was a swish. And I was looking at a female face. I'm like, God, what's happening here? And then all of a sudden, swish, another face. And then, in the next few minutes, a thousand faces of all variety of mankind went by. And I said, this is every man. I'm Jewish, my Jew. <laughs> 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 I was Jewish. That's well put. <laughs> uh, one of the things I, uh, I, I suppose you all know, but uh, I'm a, you may not. Uh, but in... <laughs> In that era, nobody had a clue what LSD was. But a funny story, when I was working with uh, my group of kids that I worked with, uh, I was working at a hospital in Costa Mesa with schizophrenic and autistic children. And I thought, well, hell, if it worked with me, it can work with anybody. So I told the psychiatrist in charge, I said, I want to give these kids LSD and see, you know, what will happen. And so what's LSD? Well, you know, this is the name of it. Well, is there any literature? No. And, he's, and so he sort of trusted me. And so uh, we just got LSD from Sandoz and started using it. And 
but nobody knew what it was. So, you know, there weren't any committees or evaluating what we were going to do. We didn't know what we were going to do. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. But one of the funny things, I was telling somebody at one time that I was doing this work, uh, uh, LSD work with these children, and the guy looked at me and said, you're converting children to Mormonism? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, no, LSD, not LDS. He needs it. So it, the environment was absolutely wonderful. Laura uh, Huxley, uh, Myron and I both have known Laura forever, and she made the comment one time, uh, we didn't have any bad trips because we didn't know you, you could have bad trips. <laughs> so uh, all the input that we ever had from anybody was how, how uh, wonderful the experience was. So we didn't have, have any set that it was other than positive. And um, what a blessing that was because it didn't, hadn't gotten anywhere. It was totally unknown. And there were a few groups around the world that were using it. A friend of mine in Holland was using it. And another friend of mine in London was using it. So we would all find each other somehow, because there wasn't any internet in those days. And, uh, but, uh, you know, word gets around. And um, uh, one of my best friends came to be Joyce Martin, who was a, an analyst in London and out of the Tavistock Clinic, and she did incredible work. And, um, and uh, Aronson Hein in Holland, incredible work. He had his own hospital, and that's all he did was LSD work, and just awesome kinds of results. And then came, along came, well, I was going to say Leary the Devil, but I won't. Long <laughs> uh, came shit, and then hit the fan, and then we were all closed down. So then we did it all, well, some of us did it without government approval, I guess you would say. Uh, do, you want, do you want to um, make any other comments, or should we ask people for questions? Uh, let me just uh, mention one more thing is, uh, with regard to Hubbard. That uh, I think his <clears throat> going to uh, to Mid Canada uh, to Hoffer and Osmond and <laughs> the demonstration with Blewett uh, really opened their eyes, and I think it really was the beginning of people beginning to discover what LSD yeah. could do, and uh, they went and started uh, doing a variety of programs, and and Twellis and uh, Blewett worked together for several years with alcoholics. And then the other hospitals in Canada were trained and did it. So I, I really think you have to say that Hubbard was an enormous factor in LSD being properly recognized for its true merits and uh, work proceeding. Uh, actually, <clears throat> in America, uh, they're, <laughs> they're harder to convince, and uh, I don't think they caught on nearly as well as the Canadians did. There are a few that did some pretty good work in America, but, but by and large, I think you have to give Hubbard a lot of credit for getting the thing moving. Myron, you wanted to read something, didn't you? Uh, well, I could at this point. Uh, what I was going <coughs> to... 
You know, Hubbard is such a fascinating guy. I thought I would read uh, several things to give you to show you how different people saw him. First, I might start off with the fact that uh, <clears throat> now I have to say here. I don't know exactly where, whether any of this stuff is true, <laughs> because Hubbard was quite, <laughs> he was all over the map. But he claims that he never wore shoes till he was 13 years old. And then at the age of 22, uh, he was uh, in, in the water near Seattle, and he had a boat uh, that was driven with uh, something that he invented. and. Uh, uh, a lot of people went out and saw that, and it was in the local newspapers there. And uh, Hubbard claimed that um, that he and that there was a perpetual motion machine that that he himself had, uh, had claimed. The people looked at it; nobody could figure it out. There's no way to say that it wasn't so. But the thing is, that boat went all around for long periods of time without any apparent fuel. And then he sold, uh, I don't think there's a connection, some people say there's a connection, but I think independently he came up with some kind of uh, a gadget that he sold for $75,000, which at that time was a lot of money, and then he said he found out afterwards that whatever it did worked so well that it was worth a great deal more money than what he got for it. Anyway, I'd like to read a little bit about how uh, different people saw him. And I think one of the first, he, he and Blood became very, very good friends. And I'm going to read Alice's book here. This is a letter that uh, Blewett wrote to Hubbard. <clears throat> he says, Hello, you old goat. <clears throat> Whose old uncle... You know, my eyes are against the bag. I'm hard to read this. <laughs> oh, okay. Starting right here. Okay. I'm mostly blind. Whose old uncle forgets him and never, never writes him a letter? My uncle Al, that's who. What are they doing to you these days that you neglect your fat nephew? I've been watching the incoming mail, meeting all the aircraft and reading all the police news regularly in hopes that I'd catch some glimpse of a letter from you, yourself, or your name and headlines. Now, you get the reference from the police news. This, Al was a, he was a magician, wasn't he? He definitely yeah, was. He, he was, a, he was a, <coughs> a cosmic jokester. He was. Uh, he, he was. He was, uh, uh, he was a funny, funny man. Um, but he knew how to make the right connections. Yes. However, despite my vigilance, there hasn't been the slightest indication that you're still alive. If I didn't know that it would take a battalion of enraged grizzly bears to do you in, I'd have been so worried I wouldn't be asleep by now. There's another picture that floats through my mind eye. In fact, a whole series of pictures of Al basking in the sunshine of some Pacific Isle, watching ball games in Wichita, catching huge fish off Boca Grande, and generally living a life of idle bliss. How about a few lines of communication to let me know if we still fly the same flag and what the latest developments have been? All the very best of good wishes. May the sound of police whistles cease to annoy you and become music to your ears. <laughs> 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 oh, that's where that was too, you know, like, 
jokester to jokester. And here's a statement um, from uh, Aldous Huxley. This is excerpted from his book, uh, Moksha. And this was, uh, well, actually this was a letter that he wrote to Humphrey Osmond. He says, I am hopeful that the good captain, oh, incidentally, uh, Hubbard made himself captain, but he did, he did have a 120-foot uh, boat, so I guess he's in Well, he was captain, captain of a good ship lollipop, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm hopeful that the good captain, whose connections with uranium seem to serve as a passport into the most exalted spheres of government, business, and ecclesiastical polity, is about to take off for New York, where I hope he will storm the United Nations take Nelson Rockefeller for a ride to heaven and return with millions of dollars. What, what babes in the woods we literary gents and professional men are, the great world occasionally requires your services, this is Osmond's, is mildly amused by mine, but its full attention and deference are paid to uranium and big business. So what extraordinary luck that this representative of both these higher powers should A, have become so passionately interested in masculine, and B, be such a very nice person. (laughs) (laughs) It was very interesting, too, to see sort of the net, how LSD was networked around uh, the country. It did get into... Uh, very well-known people were turned on by Claire Booth Lutz, uh was one of them. She had quite a remarkable experience. And I don't know if you know, like Henry Luce, he was a pretty, um, you know, broomstick up his ass kind of guy. And uh, so she gave him acid. And he was a very devout Catholic. And she said he was 15 hours on his knees praying that he would survive. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And a lot of the Hollywood people uh, got involved in the networking. Uh, Cary Grant was one of them, particularly. But there was a... And uh, people, uh, heads of different kinds of industries, I was familiar with that. I, I had turned on a few of them too, and it was very interesting how, uh, like, one session would change a whole how a whole company was run. Uh, I turned this guy on. He was really a toughie, but he had something there that he was intrigued by. Uh, my whole attitude. He couldn't figure out what, and I said, well. I was an uptight, really. I mean, all I was was one big IQ walking around before I took <laughs> It was just like I was nothing but brain. And I was a basket case. And so I told him that. And I guess he thought, well, hell, if it you know, made you into a human being, maybe it can make me into a human being. <laughs> and uh, he did. And he owned his own company. And he changed that whole company around where people were teaching people below them uh, what their uh, skills were and what their knowledge was. So everybody in the company was teaching somebody below them 
to take over their jobs eventually. It was a, an amazing thing, and they didn't have hours anymore. People would come in and work when they wanted to. And um, uh, it became a real family. And this was from one guy taking LSD. All the employees never had LSD. Um, make that clear. But just from that he owned the company and the inst changes that he instituted. And of course, I was very instrumental in suggesting to him what kinds of things could be done. The atmosphere in that place was just amazing. And there was another place down in San Diego where the guy who owned the company uh, was turned on. And he also changed his whole company the way the whole thing ran. And then they started doing profit sharing. And, and um, they just became like a big extended family. So there's all kinds of history. Seems like we could use that today in today's corporate uh, atmosphere. <laughs> Government. Uh, Alberton. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the name of the they company? They need to IV that over what, there. What were the name of the companies, if you don't mind? Uh, no, I. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just curious. Are they still around these companies? Uh, I know uh, the owner of one uh, died, uh, so I don't know if he sold it before he died or not. I think your idea of asking what people might want to do. Yeah. Um, I, believe it or not, I was a professor at one time at UCLA of all places. And I never lectured in my life. I would just ask people, what do you want to know about? And then people would say what they wanted to know about, and that's what we talked about. So I thought that we would do the same thing, ask people, well, what do you want to know about? Has there been any follow-up work done with the autistic children that you gave LSD to? Uh, no, because what happened, um, it, the project was closed down, of course, because we couldn't use it anymore. And um, so when I went back uh, to try to find out what was going on, they did not want to... Um, um, have me there, because at that time, it, it became um, the evil drug, and so when the administration you know, recognized that that's what we've been using, they were terrified. <laughs> we had made a record of every session for every child, and I think we did something like 83 sessions, and uh, so we had complete notes from every session what was in the, in the child's chart. They had taken all those out and burned them, uh, and uh, denied that it ever happened. So, uh, because they were just, uh, you know, terrified. What were the results? Tell, tell about the results a little bit. Yeah, what were the results? Are, they, are their names still recorded, or did you lose that too? Well, yes, I I know their names. Okay. What were the results of the puzzle? Right, what were some of the things? Well, um. What was so remarkable was that, now I should tell you a little bit uh, how sick these kids were. They were in a back ward, ward in the hospital. Uh, they did not relate to each other. Many of them were in camisoles 24 hours a day, tied up because they were violent. Um, most of them didn't communicate. Um, many of them just did the whirling and bumping into themselves and other people. Uh, the place was pandemonium. It was like uh, cartoons of like bedlam that, from the Middle Ages. It was just 
just trying to keep the place clean was all the staff could do. There wasn't really any treatment for them. You know, this was in the very early, this is the late 50s, so they weren't any of the medications available either. Well, the first patient that we did, uh, the psychiatrist, he said, I said, well, like, who should we start with? And he said, well, Nancy, she's dying, so why don't you start with her? Because if she dies, you know, there won't be any loss because she's dying anyway. She had what was marasmus, where she couldn't, where she was so withdrawn that even if they injected her uh, with nutrients, her body wouldn't um, absorb them. She would slough off anything. And she was just skin and bones. Uh, she weighed, you know, like 40 pounds or something. And she was black and blue. She looked like a skeleton. And she was, uh, she was um, 11. Oh. And she was tied down 24 hours a day. Because oh, if she was let loose, she would uh, tear her eyeballs out or, oh, you know, yeah. gnash herself. So that was our first patient. I thought, God, you know. And uh, so I thought, well, I was always a, you know, a risk taker. <laughs> so, and, um, so you know, I gave them the same doses that we were giving adults. I, we didn't, I didn't give them any less. We were using 500 mics with them. <laughs> because the idea was, you know, you have to use enough to get the jet propulsion going so that they don't get into conflicts. That you just like, they, they, they don't have any control over stopping it. And uh, so she started uh, feeling the effects of it after about 20, 25 minutes. We did it IM. And um, so she started groaning and howling. And we had um, a room set up where we did all our sessions. It was actually the visitor's room that we used for the sessions. And um, she started howling. It was like an animal that was wounded. And uh, howled and howled and howled. It was treacherous to listen to it. We would hold her, do everything under the sun, nothing. And so finally, after about six hours, my frustration, I took her and looked at her and just screamed at her, Nancy, how fucking long are you going to scream and moan like this? I can't take it anymore. <laughs> and she stopped and looked at me, and she had a lisp, and she said, Gowie, I have a long way to go, so just leave me to hell alone. <laughs> and she went back to howling again. That's the first communication she had ever made with anybody. That's wow. it. And from then on, boy, what a trip we had with her, because she was so bright, and she was a challenge. But, uh, you know, after a number of sessions, she was having experiences like all the sucks they would have, you know, like... Um, you know, like it was, uh, <laughs> uh, one day we were uh, going down and she said, well, the kids all knew when we were going to have a session. All the kids that were in the, in the project all wanted to be their turn. You know, they didn't want to wait. And so she was bustling down there and getting in there. And uh, so one of the other kids uh, was trying to get in. And she said, you don't. She says, you don't belong in this room. This is where we get to see God. <laughs> and uh, they would verbalize. They would verbalize completely. And they would talk about, you know, we're all one and God is love and, you know, all the stuff that people talk about. 
And these were kids, you know, young, young kids who were, had never been functional in their life. So it was amazing. The, they, they had the same results that anybody else had. It took, because they would go back, you know, you go here, here, and then you come back. And, you know, but we did as many as, I think, uh, as many as like 19 or 21 sessions or something like that. Gary, can you tell a story about the girl that you had to tell that it was being shut down by the government? And, and oh, yeah. Oh, that was awful. She was an amazing gal. I just adored her. She was uh, uh, about 14. Very, very... She was crippled and she was blind. And uh, her skin was all diseased. And uh, she uh, was a twirler. And all she would do was twirl all day long and bang into things. And she would sort of warble as she twirled. And she was always black and blue. So every once in a while, you know, she would have to be tied down for a while because she would be so self-destructive. She had the most awesome experiences uh, that I've ever sat with of anybody. I mean, she was amazing. I'll always remember her hands because when she would break through into transcendental consciousness, for lack of a better word, her hands became healing hands. And I'd love to just sit there and have her touch me. It was just awesome to, to feel her. And uh, all the sitters wanted to be in on patty sessions because <laughs> we got so much out of it. And she would touch us. And she was wonderful. Um, and she became very functional. She stopped all the twirling. She talked coherently. She was. She would help other kids on the wards. She would try to help them, and she was blind. But she became a real caretaker on the ward. Well, finally, when we couldn't uh, do the sessions anymore, I had to tell all these kids. So I had to tell her, and so she listened, and she said, well, do you know who has LSD? And I said, yes. She said, well, what's his name? And I told her, and where does he live? Well, I said, he lives in San Francisco. He's the rep for Sandoz. We got all our LSD straight from Sandoz. And she said, well, I have an idea that it's just <laughs> might work. <laughs> you go up and find him, and you tell him that you're there with a message from Patty Simpson. And Patty Simpson says, please give Gary some LSD because Patty Simpson really needs it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just remembering that just, you know, throws chills up my spine because how do you tell kids that the government is fucked? (laughs) <laughs> they're crazy you know any of those government people could come and talk with these kids um, this is a question for both of you I'm curious what commonalities you found in people's experiences since you got to work with so many people are there any things that you would consider really universal or highly common or versus, <coughs> versus uncommon experiences that people have had? Well, that's a pretty complex question, but the first thing that flashed in my mind, uh, when we had uh, people come in 
first session, uh, we told them that uh, they'd be listening to music part of the time and they could bring in some of their favorite music. And there are an awful lot of people that said that brought in only popular music and they didn't care to listen to classical music. But uh, when they got into the session, we'd asked, we'd asked their permission if we couldn't put a piece of classical music on. And the results were that not that every single one who objected to classical music after they heard it under LSD, that became their favorite music. <laughs> I have to tell you a cute story about that. And none of this is true, by the way. <laughs> uh, friends, I was at friends of my house, and um, they had, um, had had some mushrooms. And they had a, um, uh, one of these uh, big dogs, uh, like a Newfoundlander, but what's another really big dog? Great Dane? No. Yeah, St. Bernard. Yeah. And you know what they're like. And so he came in, and someone had left some of the mushrooms on the table. Of course, he ate them. So we're all sitting around, you know, wondering, like, what the hell? We didn't know any antidotes for it. And so he looked a little groggy after a while, and he went and lay down in front of the stereo. Uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony <laughs> Every time after that, in all other days, he would go up to the to the speakers and wag his tail and bark. <laughs> he wanted to listen to the New World. <laughs> so you know, that wasn't a controlled substance. <laughs> You know, like, you listen to music that you've had exquisite experiences. You listen to music, and why are you gone? It takes you to the same place. Yeah, music was an amazing, um, potent thing that we used all the time. What was interesting, too, was that, like, obviously you had... Well, at least three sitters, sometimes four sitters if the guy was really big, sometimes six sitters. Um, and uh, because sometimes when people um, uh, um, would get into a fear state, they, they could be um, combative, and so you have to sit on them. And, um, oh, where did I go with that one? We had a, a guy, uh, he was an officer uh, in the army and they'd sent him to Stanford University for some testing and Somehow or other, he heard about us, and he wanted to go through our program, so he did. So uh, he was in the room there. Uh, we always have a male and a female uh, sitting with the person, and sometimes the, maybe the doctor go in too once in a while. And, uh, but uh, uh, we had uh, 
outside the session and we had a little kitchen where we prepared stuff and I was in there doing something or other and they came dashing in and they said, oh, this, this guy's name was Joel. I said, Joel, he's getting out of hand. He wants to leave. <laughs> so I, I get, get out in the hallway and here he comes, this great big guy who's about a good foot or maybe two feet higher than me and uh, he comes marching out and he says, I said, Get back in there! <laughs> and much to my amazement, he just turned around. I recovered it. If we were uh, sitting in a session, nobody's saying anything, but we could, you know, you follow where they are because you get out of your own ego state and you, you join the person whoever's taking the acid, and you go with them all the time so that you know where the hell they are, so when they get in a tight space, you know it. They can be totally silent, but you still know it. I would get up to go and to change the record to something else that would get the guy out of where he was stuck. Often, three of us would get up at the same time. We'd all look at each other and one pick one would go over and pick up an album cover and show it, and the other two would say, yeah. So all three of us were tracking exactly the same moment to know what music we should change to get him out of that spot. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. But the question you asked, I think, also is kind of difficult, because oh, uh, people are, are very, very different. They come with different problems. And then, <clears throat> of course, as time went on, and uh, Larry began to get people scared, uh, it got uh, harder and harder to get clients uh, coming, and uh, so we really saw quite a spectrum of things, and some, the, of course what you're always looking for is a person who makes a real breakthrough, and if you do make a breakthrough, you know, you're getting to common ground, you know, yeah. that, that other place, as Walter King likes to call it, uh, that other place, that, that's a phenomenal place, and it's wonderful to all be there, but not everybody can get there, especially the first time, so there, there's a lot of differences. Yeah, they, uh, in my experience, the, the transcendental experience is absolutely the same for everybody. Uh, like when you have a complete and total ego death, uh, then everyone has the same experience. It's the same thing. Can you describe that? It's lovely to have one every morning. A moment ago, you were mentioning about um, tracking with a person, and you kind of recognize what they're doing. Did you have any experiences where um, people, where you found that the people, that one person would think something, the other person would think the same thing? I mean, were like, were, like what would be called psychic experiences? You know what I'm saying? Like thought transference are the same. Uh, when you, uh, when say there are three sitters and everybody's focused on the person who's taking the drug, then all four of you have the same consciousness all the time. Mm -hmm. Because you've, you've uh, left your own ego. And in order to do that, you have to have a, have a lot of acid experiences yourself so that you're not afraid of that. Um, to really absolutely not, not exist. Now, there is 
some kind of monitoring that's going around that you're not aware of. For instance, because then you get up and go change the record. So there's got to be some kind of consciousness that's monitoring things to guide you what to do to help that person. Or sometimes it's just going and taking the person's hand and holding them. Um, but it would always be the same, everybody would have the same response to what the person needed at that time. And uh, <laughs> uh, now one time we were sitting in the group and I, um, so I thought I had to go pee. So I got up and came back and sat down. I still had to pee. So I said, somebody in here has got a full bladder. <laughs> so nobody would opt to it because I don't think they're into their bladder at the moment. But I was. And so I made each one go and about the third person. And I said, ah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I think that's psychic. I think so. Whatever became of the Al Hubbard. I was going to say, I was going to say, same question. It's working. It's working. Did you ever get any legal trouble? And where did he end up? Or is he in hiding and we can't be Well, let's see. This is going to take a long time. Myron has him. Talking about legal trouble. Well, he did a lot of different things. <laughs> one of the things he's a rascal. One of the things he did that uh, he set up radio contact with ships that were coming in and bringing whiskey in and arranging to put it on shore for him. <laughs> he would dispose of it. Unfortunately, they caught him and he was in jail for eight for uh, eighteen months. So that's one side. On the other side, later on during the war, he was very helpful to the government and uh, helped in a lot of different ways. Uh, ask your question again. There's something else I'm not well, getting at. Well, how did he end up? Well, you know, what, is he still alive? Uh, oh yes, uh, he he died in 1980, 1982. He was 81 years old, and actually the latter years of his life were really pretty bad because. Uh, you know, he made a lot of friends. Uh, he introduced people to these things, and you can hear from what's being said uh, the openings that people got. And they just absolutely loved him. He was a great storyteller. He was full of fun. But then, uh, at a certain time, something happened to him. I, I think I was with him when it happened. But he had gone to Hawaii. He met a very wealthy woman, and he'd given her LSD. And she had agreed, uh, she says, to loan him $100,000. So he thought everything was behind him, that uh, God was behind him, that everything was working, and he could do what he pleased. And as a matter of fact, I think he moved into a state of inflation, and he, he began to really lose it, some of the kindness and considerateness of others, and uh, uh, trying to set up things to be more important. Uh, he made... Uh, connections with Teledyne and high people there and, and who made connections with the government and they were going to try to convince the government to take over programs and so on and, and none of this stuff worked and uh, 
one of the things he thought that he could do, as a matter of fact, uh, <clears throat> sometimes he would, it was a favorite uh, thing to drive people to Death Valley under the influence of LSD. And that's a marvelous trip. I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> and then what he would do is from there he would take people to Las Vegas and gamble. And he felt that under LSD he knew where to put the chips and so on. Actually, for a while he did pretty well. But I think he got greedy and then for a while he started losing and um, he began getting behind in money and uh, he was still clever enough to get quite a bit out of me because I hadn't waked up enough yet to see what he was doing. But uh, he really chipped me out of quite a bit over a period of time, and uh, he's, he, and then he would get mad at people. And he, he, the the last end end life was not good. I know. Uh, I tease Mar- Myron mercilessly. Um, I said, "Well, what he was trying to do, Myron, is wake you up." Um, <laughs> Boy, did he! <laughs> you know, in Zen, it says the devil is in the employ of God, and uh, he was the devil. And uh, uh, he played, he had all these roles. And, uh, but uh, Myron talking about this, I was just cracking in hysterics because Myron was offended that he manipulated him and took advantage of him. And I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) See, my my buddy, I have a real close buddy that was a very close disciple of Hubbard and they were close, but he he didn't have my neurotic tendencies. (laughs) So he really learned an awful lot with LSD. So Al would come and he'd start telling one of these stories, there's a guy here if we can do this, and and he'd pull out his wand and say, okay, Hubbard, what do you want? Take what you want. <laughs> so he knew, but I was better. <laughs> oh, we wanted him. You know, when you want people to be just one thing, they bite you in the ass. <laughs> did you ever do any work with John Lilly, or did he fit into this Circle well, <clears throat> well, I didn't. Uh, I knew people that were close to him, but I didn't. But, uh, no, I did not either. I uh, knew of him. I'd met him, and uh, uh, I guess he was pretty decimated by the work that he was doing with dolphins, you know, in, in Florida. And he released them all because, as you might remember, uh, they were all trying to commit suicide because they were so unhappy. And I had an experience of that too in Waimanalo in Hawaii. They were doing interspecies communication. Gregory Bates, I don't know if anybody you know Gregory Bates. And, yes. Uh, and he was married to Margaret Mead. And they were doing that too. And um, I went over and actually got in the tanks with some of the killer whales. And uh, they were trying to commit suicide and very depressed. And um, had some interspecies <laughs> communication with them. And they said if they had to live this way, they'd rather be dead. And so they started releasing, uh, I was going to say, their guys who were unhappy, the dolphins that were unhappy, they left them out too. Mm, I was also referring to, you know, he was doing the uh, samadhi tanks, taking LSD and going into the sensory deprivation tanks. Speak louder. Um, John Lilly was doing research on himself. Yes. Shooting... LSD and then going into a sensory deprivation tank. Well, the 
um, the um, sort of general notion that most people have is that he um, got in um, very unusual states and could not transition, that he got pretty dysfunctional. Did, did he die, Myron? Do you know? Oh, yeah. yes, he died yeah. years ago. He's been here. He's, he's been a guest here. John Lillywood has been a guest ah. at this gathering. Ah. So he was speak. He was the last time I saw him was at Oz's place that we were mm. with the gathering. Mm. I'm curious as to when you lost the, the LSD for your study and what happened to the kids afterwards. Did, did they hold the the improvements that they'd made um, in their lives, the autistic children? Or did they, do you, do you know what happened to, to them? No, not the all of them, because um, when I went back, um, you know, I was persona non grata. So it was very difficult for me to get any information. I know that before I left, uh, two of the kids were uh, had been discharged to their home and were going to public school. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a school within the hospital and, and um, some of them were attending that school. Um, the, one of the problems was is that many of the parents of these kids were very, very disturbed people. And it was it's very hard to place children who have that kind of history. So we were just absolutely devastated about what to do. I mean, our first response is, well, we're going to adopt them all and take them home. Right. Well, some of us were married and had three kids at home already. And, well, sometimes the wives weren't that open to having a house full of schizophrenic children. (laughs) At that point, they were more sane than my own kids, probably. It was awful. It was a terrible, it was an awful experience uh, losing contact with them. But at that point, you say they were functioning? Yes, many. uh, We started with, uh, gee, I think we started with 12, and uh, we just couldn't handle 12. And I think uh, then we did walk, uh, intensive work with six to eight of them. And they all really had remarkable uh, uh, recoveries. They all improved? No. Um, uh, some of the, um, uh, we had one kid, she was like uh, three years old. And uh, she never taught. And um, she, um, uh, during sessions, we never got any feedback from her. But she was always very isolated. Uh, always couldn't stand to be touched. And of course, during sessions, we would always be touching them, constantly touching them. And um, so after about three sessions that she had, um, whenever any of the uh, LSD staff would come on the ward, she would run to us and touch us and want to touch us and, and hold hands with us all the time. So we knew, although she had no speech, she had never learned to talk, uh, we knew that something had happened because she was always wanting just to be touched all the time. But she, you know, she was very young and she 
Um, we don't know, you know, what kind of brain damage she might have had either. But we had, we didn't have any kids that didn't have a, an obvious change. Now that was the least change that any of them showed. Did you, did figures know statistics saying that we had a 100% improvement rate in the destroyed it. Did that not, did you show any of your statistics to any government they, officials? They destroyed it. Well, let me answer that. Did, did everybody hear the question? Okay. Uh, let, let me answer that question with, uh, it happens to be a true story this time. Um, I was doing um, work at uh, Cedars, of, oh God, I almost said Cedars of Lebanon, I guess I won't, mm. uh, with terminal uh, cancer patients. And the head of oncology there um, got a hold of the head of psychiatry and said, is there any um, way that we can help people with intractable pain? Because we've tried all the medications in the world, these people are still having terrible pain. And so this fellow knew that I had done quite a bit of work with LSD. And this was still early in the game. And so he said, would you be willing um, to uh, uh, see these people? And I, Man, I was willing to take anybody on, you know. I would just give me some you know, people to work with. And so the first patient was one of their worst patients. She was very neurotic, very unhappy, terrible attitude, and had pain all the time. And she had uh, advanced cancer. So she had one of the most remarkable experiences I've ever seen. Uh, just had a complete breakthrough. And her whole personality changed. Uh, she um, did a lot of work after that with her family and so forth. But the next day, uh, I went to see her and I said, well, like, we talked about it. I said, well, how is, you know, how is your pain? She said, I don't have any pain. And I said, wonderful. Uh, and she says, do you have any idea, like, how long I'm going to be that way? I said, oh, I have a clue. You're the first one we've done. <laughs> and so then the oncologist came back and said to her, well, how are you? And so forth. And she said, he said, no, he came in because she had refused her pain medication. She told the nurse, I'm not going to take pain medication if I don't need it. It makes me constipated. makes me, you know, upset stomach. I'm not going to take it. So he came in and said, uh, why are you not taking your pain medication? And she said, well, because I don't have any pain. He said, you're having pain. Don't lie to me. You're lying. She says, no, I don't have pain. He says, I'll go get the x-rays and show you on x-rays where you have to be having pain. And she basically told him that he knew where he could shove his x-rays. So he discharged her and she fired him at the same time. So it was a mutual. Um, and so he called the head of psychiatry and said, I don't want Dr. Fisher treating any more of my patients because he makes them psychotic. And he said, well, what do you mean they make them psychotic? Well, this woman who is, is full of cancer now thinks she doesn't have any pain. So, you know, she's psychotic. <laughs> and so the guy, so the psychiatrist said, well, would you rather have them psychotic and not have pain, or would you rather have them normal and have pain? He said, I'd rather have them normal than pain. So, you know, talk about statistics for the establishment. Forget it. Well, what happens, no, what happens is that how can they deal with that reality? 
You know, if you don't understand something, you say the person is psychotic. I mean, that's what psychosis means in our culture. Somebody's crazy if you don't understand them. I mean, everybody uses the word crazy to say, I don't understand this person. They're crazy. He couldn't deal with the phenomenon that he knew that she had pain and why wasn't she having pain? His solution was, she's psychotic. It's a total natural conclusion he would come to. He didn't come and say, what the hell are you doing with these people that you're getting rid of their pain? Tell me about it. You know, let's do 20 of them. No. He had to maintain his notion of reality. And we saw that over and over and over. Well, you should have given him I don't know if you can answer this question, but can you theorize or describe the physiological reason that LSD would alleviate such severe pain in somebody? Like, how, how, what's the mechanism by which a psychedelic can, can create that miracle, really? Because, you know, a lot of people are in a lot of pain. It would be nice to have an out. <laughs> Uh, yes, I do know how you do it. Because <laughs> uh, I experimented with myself. And um, just all of this, the things that are going on neurophysiologically continue to go on. What you cease to do is to respond to it. And what you do is focus on the sensation and by focusing on it and totally embracing it, you neutralize it. You neutralize it, and it becomes just sensation. It's like white light. It has no positive or negative valence effects to it. And I experimented that with myself by um, getting centered and then going this way with pain and this way with pain and this way with pain and this way with pain, way with pain until I got to the bottom and then finally you get to the point where it's so intense that you either tear your hair out or accept the pain. You embrace it, it becomes neutral, it becomes the sensation. But to do that, to have that capacity, obviously you need to be in an altered state of consciousness. And after you've had you know, a whopping dose of acid, that stays with you for... Well, the first time I had acid, I was in that state for eight months. I didn't come down for eight months. Wow. <laughs> I didn't sleep for eight months. Wow. I had no need for sleep. <coughs> but then I started getting back to ordinary reality. <laughs> and you can teach people under those states, these... You know, you can tell them how that works. Well, maybe everybody's had enough of it. Oh, no, 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 no. No, we're just thinking. We don't want to hear more funny stories. stories. Yeah, funny stories. What's the, funny, what's the funniest story that you can think of that happened? Oh, there's more. Captain Al get his acid. Didn't he have some kind of government source or something? 
Al was very good at making connections with people. Like Harry Allhouse was the Sandoz person in San Francisco. And he Hubbard just knows how to seduce people. He and he and, and Althouse became very good friends and he was able to get L S D and he, and then uh, he'd make friends in Canada with people in important positions and they would get it. And uh, then he made a connection with Czechoslovakia and got uh, LSD from Czechoslovakia. So I he was completely David. Where can we get some? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a hilarious story. This is Let's hear it. When uh, we finished. We had access to uh, Sandoz uh, LSD in Switzerland. And so a bunch of us got together. There were about 10 of us in the, in the project. And we all got our money together. And uh, uh, now I don't remember why this guy went to Vancouver. Anyway, he went to Vancouver, flew from Vancouver to London, from London to Frankfurt. Somebody in Frankfurt went to uh, Switzerland and got the acid because it was like under the table uh, sale. And we got a lot of it. And uh, so then went back to Frankfurt, London, Vancouver, came across the border in a car and so forth, got to LA. At that time I was in, I was working in Hawaii. So my portion they sent to me. And they put it in, uh, they said we put it in shaving cream. And so um, uh, that's how it's packaged. So. Uh, I got it and I opened up and there's all this shaving cream. Well, um, I... You mean the, uh, the actual liquid was mixed in the shaving no. cream? No. <laughs> 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 Good idea. <laughs> so I took it all. We were, I was living in an old abandoned hospital at the time. I was working for Peace Farm. And so... All this stuff, I thought, well, I'll just go. I thought the shaving cream, you know, was the um, the cushion for it. So I took it and dumped it all in the toilet, flushed the toilet. And it was all in the bottom. I dumped the whole... Oh, oh my God. And I realized that I was hysterical for a week. What a cosmic joke. What a cosmic joke. So I learned that, well... Okay, it's meditation time now. Somebody's really happy in that sewage treatment. Heavy fish. New species. Well, I want to thank you two guys for coming out. I know that. Do we have to end? I don't know. It's up to you guys how long you want to stay here. But I, I promised Gary I wouldn't keep him out too late tonight. So I still want to get a few more things out of him. So I have to kind of hold to my word. Are <laughs> well, you up for any more questions? Or maybe nobody has any more. I'd like to know, um, I'm fascinated with the results you were getting. And could you talk a little bit about your medical um, past? I mean, you were, you were working in a clinical setting. <clears throat> and I'm 
So what, what, are you a doctor? Uh, I'm a psychologist. Oh. And yes, the hospital we worked with, with the children was uh, uh, a hospital, and the guy who was medically responsible was a psychiatrist. He, he would never take it. Um, he didn't, um, he just said that he wasn't, you know, ready for it, but uh, he was like wonderfully supportive. He used to come and sit in on the sessions, and he was just amazed at it all. So he was a wonderful guy. But then, and then the other LSD work I did well at um, Cedars, I did work there with it, and um, and then most of all the other places. Well, I also did work with, in London with it. Uh, with a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist, and then in, in Holland as well. <clears throat> well, Charlie, should I tell him the story about the guy that took the acid and nothing happened? Sure. <laughs> Are you talking about this young youngster? Oh, that is a fabulous story. <laughs> well, this was the world's, he, he considered himself the world's most difficult psychiatric patient. And he was probably in his mid-twenties. And he had been at Menninger Institute. He had been at uh, Austin Riggs. All the big top-notch psychiatric facilities in the country. And nobody could help him. His father was head of a very big corporation in L.A. And so the, the kid could never compete with the father. So, but he could become the worst psychiatric <laughs> and, and that, that he was completely untreatable. What was the so, diagnosis? I mean, what, what, what was untreatable? What did they say was wrong? Well, he had all these, you know, very amorphous symptoms. Um, you know, he couldn't sleep. He had, you know, depression. I mean, just on and on and on. You know, he, he was very bright, and he would read all the... Uh, psychiatric textbooks and he'd come up all with all these diagnoses. He was in psychoanalysis for seven years at Menninger's and he didn't budge an inch because he had to prove that he was the world's most untreatable patient. <laughs> His father found out about me and asked the head of psychiatry at the hospital you know, if I'd be willing to give him LSD. And so I said, Hell yes, I've never turned anybody down. <laughs> I didn't care about his system, you know. To me, it was like, ah, we'll get in there. And so um, he came, and I tried to prep him for it. He paid no attention whatsoever to what I was talking about. You know, and then, yeah, blah, 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 another drug, you know. He had every drug known to man. Uh, so we gave him 600 mics. <laughs> and um, he... Uh, and first of all, he was just sitting there, and so then he said, I think I'll lie down. I'm not, I think I'm, I'm going to have a little rest. And I said, no, good idea. Well, he just went through holy hell. I mean, he shook. He perspired. He was throwing up. I mean, he was just a mess. I would sit with him and try to hold him, and he'd push me away. No, no. I'd say, what's happening? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing's happening. Oh, okay. This went on for hours and hours and hours. <clears throat> and uh, 
at the end of about, well, I guess we were there 18 hours. And he was, uh, was in a hospital, so he stayed overnight. But he was just, he looked like death warmed up. And so I said, well, I'll come and see you tomorrow morning. And he said, well, nothing happened. Well, it's okay. It's okay. So I came the next day and so forth. And so, um, so, you know, he went to charge, so he told his parents, you know, that nothing happened. And so I met with the father and I said, well, something definitely happened. But uh, Richard doesn't want to acknowledge anything of this. So what we'll need to do is to try to uh, do more sessions with him. And uh, give him more. Give him more. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so the father said, anything you can do. <laughs> And so, um, so I went back to uh, the hospital. She said, "No, we're not doing this kid anymore. You can't. We won't let you do it here." So I called my friend Anderson Hine in Holland and told him that I had this guy. I said, "Can I can I send him to you? Will you do it?" And he said, "No, but if you come, you can do it here. You can do it under my auspices." So I met with Richard and said, "Well, I said the bad news is." that we can't give you any more LSD here. And he went, you know, thank God. And I said, but the good news is that I found a place in Europe that will allow us to do it. And these people are very um, knowledgeable and have done it for years. And so um, we can go there and do it. He said, oh, my father would never go to that expense. I said, your father's already approved. He went, oh, my God. Because <laughs> he wasn't about to take LSD again. And so I said, so uh, would you be willing to go? And he said, no, I couldn't go by myself. So I said, no, I'm going with you. He said, you're going to come with me? I said, yes. He said, well, how long are you going to stay? As long as I need to. Oh. He looks at me <laughs> he hadn't met anybody, you know, who had teeth in him like I did. <laughs> so he said, well, I have to get back to you. And um, so I'll let you know when I'm ready. So I would call the house. Now, this kid had not been out in his house for years. He stayed in a room in the house with uh, an attendant 24 hours a day. He had three round-the-clock attendants. And he was in a darkened room that he lived in all the time. So I would call and his mother would answer and I said, uh, uh, is Richard in? She said, no, he's gone out. <laughs> and I said, oh, where'd he go? He doesn't say. And so I'd call about a week later, is Richard in? No, he goes out every day. I said, did you tell him to call me? And she said, yes. I said, he doesn't return my calls. He says, I think he's going out, so he's not here to take your call. It's <laughs> <laughs> a long, a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, I never saw him again. He moved out of the house. He moved into his own apartment. He got a job. He got a girlfriend. He went to college. Wow. Uh, All to avoid you. Yeah. <laughs> well, Charlie Grove had the greatest idea because this was published in one of uh, maps and so um, Rick Doblin's always wants follow-up 
So Charlie said, well, do you think you could find them and do follow-up? And I said, oh, yeah, after 30 years, I'm knocking on the side. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Do it, knock on his door and say, hey, you know, you've been tripping for about 18 hours. Find him and do it. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting the different ways that people use life experiences. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's wonderful. Do you know if any of the kind of work that you both have been doing is being done at this time in other countries? Do you know of any places doing LSD work today? Only surreptitiously. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think <clears throat> I think German, Germany was getting a little interested, but I don't know if they've really started anything. Uh, there, I think there's more talk. I think, <clears throat> you know, we now have three approved projects in the United States, so that's a big step forward. Nothing's happened in 30 years up till now. So, I don't know, I, I think some inroads are being made, and especially if these projects turn out well, I think we'll start seeing some openings. Why do you think there's that change? Why are they, after 30 years of nothing happening, why are they suddenly allowing research again? Well, you'd have to ask the people who are in there now. Uh, I don't know, they've just been adamant for a long time, but you know, other people have been working away and trying to get results. And, I guess Charlie probably knows better than anybody here why. Yeah, we, 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 we just were very stubborn. <laughs> we, just, you know, we just persisted and, you know, it's taken many, many years to get these approvals, but, you know, we're finally wearing them down. Well, the other thing is the, the evolution of age, the people who are now in decision-making positions, some of them took acid in the 60s, you know, that, that they're, they're doing much too. Yeah. Some of them didn't inhale, yeah. Some of them snorted. Yeah, there you go. What are the other two questions? There's the one I heard about at the beginning of the night. And I haven't been to some meetings for a while, so I don't know what the other two projects are. That you just mentioned. Oh, the three projects. Yeah. Uh, one is Rick Dalman's project with uh, MDMA. Uh, there's Charlie's project uh, with psilocybin. And then there's another one with obsessive compulsive disorder. That's also psilocybin. Oh, that's great. Thank you. As far as I know, those are the only three. <laughs> I'm thinking that the, the, what we're hearing about ibogaine and ayahuasca and how they're using that with uh, crack and heroin addictions, it probably has, is a similar, you know, sort of... They only mentioned about ibogaine. The, the two clinics have opened up in the past year out of this country, and they're not, there's no research going on. They're just straight treating people clinically. There's a clinic in Mexico and a clinic in uh, Vancouver. 
and uh, the people running these programs are both going to come to a conference in Palm Springs in June to uh, present uh, what they're doing. That's the ITA conference uh, in mid-June in Palm Springs. It's May. What? It's in May. No, it's in June. June. Maybe there's another. It's June. It starts June 13th. International Transpersonal Association. This is an organization of Stanislaus Grafler. Grafler is one of the most... Prolific researchers for many years, both in Czechoslovakia and in Maryland. And uh, the website is uh, www.itaconference.org. Something like that. Okay, we're cooked. Thank you so much. Let me just say it's wonderful to come here with, to be with you. It was just Thank wonderful. You. Yeah. Just so everybody knows by vote, I count up, it was a close call, but by one vote, Fish Stew won. Yeah. So, um, Barry and Myron, do we have the peace sign for the camera? The peace sign? Sorry. I keep getting that one. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Wow, that sure took me back. To me, uh, it almost seems like that conversation took place last night. As I listened to them with you just now, it felt like I was still sitting there in Kathleen's living room. I almost said in uh, Caitlin's living room, because that's the name I gave her in the Genesis generation. And if you've heard that chapter already, I think you now know that I wasn't exaggerating about the raucous crowds we had on those wonderful nights. Ah, Kathleen, there's no doubt in my mind, but but you were the hostess of the greatest L.A. salon that's been seen for many a generation. And uh, since you're considerably younger than I am, I'm sure that we'll see you hosting another great salon yet again one day. And uh, by the way, near the end of this talk just now, when you heard Gary ask someone named Charlie a question... That Charlie was uh, Dr. Charles Grobe, who at the time was doing the psilocybin research with cancer patients at uh, Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And uh, I would like to add that at that time, my wife was Charlie's research assistant for that study. And when she retired, uh, she and Charlie very wisely replaced her uh, services with those of Alicia Danforth, who you have also heard here in the salon in earlier podcasts. So, uh, you see, in a way, it's all in the family. Our extended family, that is, and uh, it's the one that you most definitely are also a part of. And wasn't it interesting to hear Myron speak just now of only three psychedelic research projects that were then taking place in the States? And while there aren't all that many more today, we have at least progressed to the point where 1,200 professional people came together a few months ago for a psychedelic science conference, something that wasn't in the range of possibilities just six years ago. So maybe we are making a little progress after all. Now you may remember from an earlier podcast that I did with Gary Fisher that he mentioned that he had given me the one interim report that survived about the autistic children's experience in using LSD as a possible cure. 
And I'll be sure that a link to that paper appears along with the uh, program notes for today's podcast uh, in case you want to follow up on what the results were. And uh, maybe I should also add that uh, in Gary's list of headlines about the various kinds of work he did with LSD around the world, he managed to omit the fact that he was uh, also with Dr. Timothy Leary at his compound in Mexico on the various Caribbean islands they were kicked out of and uh, at Millbrook, where uh, he left not long after Ken Kesey crashed the party. And I think that most of those stories are already documented in past podcasts that I've done with Gary, in case you're interested in hearing them. And by the way, if you go to our new Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog and scroll down the right column to see Gary Fisher's category, a click on that link will bring up all of the podcasts I've done with him and uh, either stream the programs there or download them. And along with the program notes for this podcast, I'll also post a scan that I made of uh, that painting that they were talking about, Veronica's Veil, the uh, one that they stared at while on LSD. It's actually the uh, same one that Myron used at uh, the Menlo Park Institute back in the day, and uh, he gave it to me a few years ago, and it still remains one of my most precious possessions. Now, before I go, I'd like to read something about what the Arrowhead Group is doing to help preserve the work of these early pioneers in psychedelic research. A while back, a truckload of documents were uh, shipped to the Arrowhead Center from Myron and Gene Stoleroff by way of John Hanna's van, and uh, since then, a lot has happened. And I asked John to give us a little update, and here's part of what he had to say. I just today sent off the remaining couple dozen or so reels of audio tape for transfer. Last time I did this, it only took about a week until I got them back. The cost for completing these transfers is going to be around $1,000. It might be good to mention that figure when encouraging people to make targeted donations for the project on your show. You are also welcome to mention the fact that these recordings will be featured in future episodes of the Psychedelic Salon and that they are a unique and valuable flashback to earlier times, an important part of our psychedelic history. And uh, I, I guess I should add that one of those tapes that John found is an interview that Myron conducted with Dr. Humphrey Osmond back in 1964. You remember Osmond, I'm sure. Uh, he was the man who actually coined the word psychedelic. And I'm really looking forward to the day that uh, you and I can hear this conversation here in the salon. Now, if you are an Arrowwood member, you also receive their print publication, Arrowwood Extracts. And uh, in the next edition, here is uh, what they'll be saying about the Stoleroff collection. In February, Arrowwood received scans of all the items that were sent to professional scanning services from the Stoleroff collection. Nearly 5,000 unique items were digitized. The original paper documents have been returned and most remain stored at Arrowwood Central, until a time can be arranged to deliver them to the Stoleroffs in person. A small portion of the collection, about 350 private letters, was removed and shipped by request to the couple who penned them. A disc of all scanned materials is also provided to Myron's daughter Harriet. Along with the text materials, the Stoleroff collection includes a couple dozen reel-to-reel -reel recordings, many of which are unlabeled. To test the feasibility of digitally archiving these, sample reels were sent to two companies specializing in audio data transfer. One of the reels contains a November 1, 1964 interview that Myron conducted with Humphrey Osmond. The second reel contains a non-dated trip report in which Myron describes the first time he took a 200 microgram dose of LSD. Unfortunately, while both companies did a reasonable job in transferring the recordings, there were some challenges. Although losses and audio gremlins are to be expected on magnetic tape that is over 40 years old, 
The sound levels were quite low and marred by distracting hum or buzz. Hoping to produce something a bit better, Arrow would pass the discs along to volunteer Jay Rizos, who remastered them and was able to boost the levels and remove much of the buzz. The resulting sound quality, while not perfect, is substantially better and more pleasant to listen to. As this issue of Extracts goes to print, we have sent the remaining reels out to be digitized, and will then have the files cleaned up as needed. Eventually, this audio will be published online, linked through the Myron Stolaroff Character Vault. We'll keep you posted. Arrowhead now looks forward to the next step in making the Stolaroff collection available online, the development of a keyword-searchable database with abstracts for each document and audio file. Donations toward this phase of the project can be made at arrowhead.org slash donations slash project underscore stoleroff dot php. And uh, I'll be sure to put a link to that in the program notes for this podcast. So if you are in a position to help with this work, I'm sure that future generations will be forever grateful to you. And uh, by the way, to help, it doesn't mean that donating money is the only way to do so, because uh, that would eliminate almost everybody I know. Things are uh, really tight for all of us right now. Uh, I know that too. But what you can do is the same thing that I'm doing, and that's spread the word. You never know who you might tell about the Stolaroff collection that uh, may just be the person whose next-door neighbor is the one to put the fun drive over the top. As I've said before, we're all in this together, you know. Well, that should do it for now, and so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you once again that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find through psychedelicsalon.org. And I guess I should mention that I've now completed the revision of the notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, which you can find via psychedelicsalon.com, .net, .org, or .us, all of which will redirect your browser to matrixmasters.net slash salon. Uh, in the past, that blog was located at matrixmasters.net slash blogs, but that is uh, no longer an active website for me. And uh, I have left it in place because there are so many links into it that uh, I don't want to break them all. But if you bookmark that address, you may want to change it or just use one of the Psychedelic Salon addresses because uh, they'll always be pointing to the uh, current site should I ever have to relocate it again. And I should also mention that uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Yes, well, it is an ambiguous enterprise and fraught with contradiction, but forward, ever forward. <laughs>